0: I want to start out this morning with a sung prayer. Perhaps you can join me along the way. Oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how unknowable his path. Who knows the mind of our God? And who can bring counsel to him? Who has given to God that God should repay? For from him, through him, to him is everything. To God be the glory forever and ever. To God be the glory forever, amen. To God be the glory forever and ever. To God be the glory forever, amen. To Him be the glory, amen? Amen. To God be the glory. And by giving God the glory, we simultaneously admit that we have nothing to boast about right? That we have nothing to glorify ourselves for. Romans eleven thirty five asks, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid, right? If God owns the cattle on the thousand hills and we take one of those cattle and offer it to him, if God owns all the people, if God owns all the nations of the world and we offer those things back to him, what have we given him that he didn't already have? And if we're saved by the sacrificial offering of Christ for our sins, which we are, then there's nothing for us left to do but thank him, right? There's nothing left for us to do but praise him. All accounts have been settled for us and not by us. So there's nothing left to do but worship. Worship. And that's what Romans 12, 1 through 2 is all about. It's about true spiritual worship offered in response to what God has done for us. It's about offering love back to the one who first loved us. But what does this offering consist of? What is true spiritual worship? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 12. It's on page 947 of your church Bible. And this morning, I'll probably flop back and forth between an old version that I had memorized and this one here in the ESV. But let's read this aloud first. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of Of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this passage, we find four principles of spiritual worship. Spiritual worship, number one, is a response to God's prior love, number two, spiritual worship is an offering of our whole selves. Number three, spiritual worship resists conformity to the world and transforms us into the image of Christ. And number four, spiritual worship clarifies God's will. All right, let's start with number one. Spiritual worship is a response to God's prior love. Now, anytime we hit a therefore in the Bible, we should ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore, right. Right. And so what is this therefore? Therefore, it's a hinge point in the book of Romans. Paul has just been explaining the glorious good news in Romans 1 through 11 that Jesus has saved us from sin and death, that it wasn't something we did, but it's something that God did. And now this hinge verse, therefore, therefore, in view of what? In view of the mercies of God, which I've just spent 11 chapters trying to drill into your brains, in view of that... We ought to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. You see that hinge point? And the rest of Romans, Romans 12 through 16, is about our practical Christian life, offering ourselves back to God in light of what he's offered for us. And this pattern is very common in the Pauline epistles, to start with the sort of theological underpinnings, and then to build on that the practicals of Christian life. Like, for example, look at Ephesians, look at Colossians, look at Galatians. I heard of a preacher one time, a friend of mine went to a conference, who said, in order to understand Romans 1, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, uh, you have to understand the context of this passage. And then he proceeded to recite all of Romans chapters 1 through 11 from memory. Oh my God. And only then did he start to preach on that. And so I said to you this morning, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I wish I could do that. If I could, I would put you through that. (laughs) But what I will do is encourage you guys to reread Romans chapters 1 through 11. Because as we've returned to Romans this summer, it's really important that we read these chapters in view of God's mercy. Amen. God wants us to trust the givenness of his mercy shown to us on the cross, and then to respond to that radical gift in a radical way. It reminds me of the parable of the treasure that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, notice in in this parable, the treasure is actually already provided. But the gospel response is also total. There's something about truly grasping the surpassing value of the gospel that radicalizes the rest of our lives. That's what worship looks like in light of the gospel. It calls for everything we have and everything we are. But it does so for the right reasons. And keeping these things in order and in perspective really matters. The rest of Romans calls Christians to radical obedience. Every bit as radical as anything we see in the Gospels. But it must be lived out in view of God's mercy. It's like the difference between a child who seeks achievement in order to earn his parents' love. Right? And a child who, being confident of the givenness of his parents' affections, pursues excellence out of a free response to that love. If we worship God, if we serve the church or love other people out of a nervous effort to to gain a right standing in heaven, then we've lost sight of the gospel. As T.S. Eliot puts it, to do the right thing for the wrong reason is treason. And so we remember that true worship is a response to God's prior love. Number two, spiritual worship is an offering of our whole selves, not just the religious parts of ourselves, right? Not just the singing and the praying and the going to church and things that we would categorize as spiritual, right? Not just that part of us, that part of the pie of our lives, that religious part where we say, well, that's the part that really belongs to God. No, God wants the whole pan, right? Interestingly, in Romans 12, presenting our bodies is called spiritual worship. And it's interesting because in the Greco-Roman context, largely influenced by the thought of Plato, they thought of the body as a prison, as something that wasn't good, and only the spirit was good. But in Hebraic thought, right? We believe that the creator created our bodies as well as our souls, as well as our spirits, right? It all comes from a good creator. And so all of it is to be presented back to him. Verse 2 even adds our minds to the list because the ancients knew that the human mind takes on the shape of that which we worship and obey. When modern people use the word spiritual, we tend to mean things like crystals and dream catchers and a host of other wispy and insubstantial things that have nothing to do with any kind of real commitment to God. But the biblical vision of spirituality is much more grounded, right? It's much more earthy. In scripture, marriage is spiritual. In scripture, what we do with our wallets is spiritual. In scripture, how we treat the poor is spiritual. Our bodies are spiritual in the word of God. For believers, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. All these things and more we set on the altar offering back to God who offered us everything. As the hymn writer puts it, more beautifully than my words could take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Spiritual worship is an offering of our whole selves. Number three, spiritual worship resists conformity to the world and transforms us into the image of Christ. And I want to linger a bit longer on this point. I'm grateful for Sarah's excellent children's sermon. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. According to scripture, conformity to the world must be proactively resisted. Right? This is the heart of spiritual warfare. In her song, Freedom Time, Lauren Hill seems to be commenting directly on this passage when she says, there's a war in the mind for the territory over dominion. Who will dominate the opinions? Schisms and isms keeping us in forms of religion, conforming our vision, the world church's decision. She goes on to say, what's got them drunk off the spirit? Truth comes and we can't hear it when you've been programmed to fear it. Now who you choose in the head of the tail the bloodshed of the male or confidence in the veil conferences at Yale, discussing doctrines at bail, causing people to fail, keeping a third in jail. His words nailed everything to the tree, severing all of me from all that I used to be severing all of me from all that I used to be. This is what Jesus meant when he said, anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will truly find it. C.S. Lewis lays this out so insightfully in Mere Christianity. Bishop Neal recently reshared this passage for you. Um, and I want us to hear it afresh in light of our own cultural context. He says The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events that I never started and which I cannot stop. Lewis goes on to uh, to comment on conformity of the world. He says, what I call my wishes... Become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Eggs and alcohol and a good night's sleep will be the real origins of what I flatter myself by regarding as my own highly personal and discriminating decision to make love to the girl opposite to me on the railroad railway carriage. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideas I am not in my nature in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Amen. Our true selfhood is found only, when we lay our whole selves on the altar before Christ who laid himself down for us. You know, oftentimes I think we try to baptize our cultural conformity to the world and we call it uh, cultural contextualization, but is that really what's going on? Are we truly worried about evangelism or are we rather avoiding the scorn of the world? Scripture and the great saints of the faith have much more to say about the dangers of conformity to the world than they do about the nuances of contextualizing the gospel. Or is it only to his first generation of Jesus's disciples that he proclaimed in John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Friends, if we resist conformity to the world, if we follow the one uh, who was crucified, then we're going to be hated as well. Our gospel reading from Matthew 16 reminds us of this remember Peter has confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in the context, uh, Jesus commends him. And then in the very next phrase, right? Jesus starts to teach them how he's going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And Peter's like, no Lord, this shall never happen to you. Right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now why doesn't Jesus, why doesn't Peter want Jesus to suffer? Well, Peter's, Resistance to the suffering of Jesus foreshadows his own resistance to the suffering that will cause him to deny Christ three times at his trial. The crucifixion of Jesus didn't fit his view of who the Messiah is, of what greatness is. In Peter's mind, greatness must mean something more like popularity, right? And political victory and universal recognition. Isn't the whole point of being on the winning side, Jesus, that we get to? Avoid unpleasant things like rejection and self-sacrifice and crucifixion. On the other hand, if Peter admits that suffering is the destiny of his master, what does that mean for him as a disciple? To put it simply, Peter wanted the crown without the cross. And we do this to Jesus today. We remake Jesus's mission in our own image leaving out the, the parts that will cause the world to hate us. We prefer to emphasize those aspects of the faith that will make us look good in the public eye, right? And we make that the sum total of Jesus's kingdom agenda. For example, the world is fired up right now about social justice, anti-racism, and ecology. And since we know that those things are indeed topics that Christians are called to care about, well, we, shout, we shout these things from the rooftops, on the other hand, we steer clear right, of topics that will cause us to look less respectable, less tolerant, and less, what do we want to say, woke in the world's eyes? It's a new religion, guys. And it's just as pharisaical as what Jesus was fighting at this time. But isn't this just another example of avoiding the cross? In his Christian discourses, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard muses on Jesus's command to seek first the kingdom. And he goes through the list of what this might mean. He said, should a person get a suitable job in order to exert a virtuous influence? His answer, no, seek first the kingdom. Then should we give away all our money to feed the poor? Again, the answer is no, we must seek first the kingdom well, then perhaps we're to go out and preach this truth to the world that people are to seek first the kingdom. Once again, the answer is a resounding no. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. If I can speak plainly, I think this insight from Kierkegaard really gets to the heart of the problem for us as a church. Not that we are the kind of people who reject seeking first the kingdom outrightly. Right? but we collapse what that looks like into one single kingdom value that supersedes all others, or maybe a set of values that we're more comfortable with than others. On the traditional end of the spectrum, this can take the form of good things, right? Like prioritizing family or or protecting the unborn. On the progressive side, this can look like trying to prove to the world in every conceivable way that we're not racist or homophobic or that we're on the right side of history. But when we make one of these things, guys, the sum total of what it means to seek first the kingdom, then what we've really made is another kind of idol. It's no longer the fear of the Lord that's guiding us. It's the fear of the world guys. And that's just another kind of conformity. At some point, a true disciple of Jesus has to reckon with the Lord's entire kingdom agenda, not just the parts that make us look good. And just like Peter would eventually embrace suffering and be crucified upside down, so every true disciple must embrace suffering and rejection in some form or another. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, brothers and sisters, because evangelism will never be popular. It will never be popular. The exclusivity of Christ's claims will never be popular. Christianity and its sexual ethics has never been popular. And in fact, in our day, they will certainly be a cause for rejection for accusations of us being puritanical, bigoted or worse. Now, to be clear, Jesus rejects all bigotry. Christians shouldn't hate anybody We're called to reject superiority towards outsiders because we know in view of God's mercy that we've been saved by grace alone. But if we hold fast to the teachings of scripture, the world will not accept these things to be true about us, guys. The world is not going to accept it. We can't have our cake and eat it too. And what a true disciple learns to say is, so be it. Let God be true, though every man be a liar let the world think me upside down because Jesus and his kingdom proclaim that the world is upside down and constant and consecrating ourselves to the way of Jesus is the only way we're going to be of any use to healing this broken world. If these words from Jesus are bringing any sense of conviction for you this morning, please lean into them. Don't pull away because If we've never really stood for Jesus when it makes us unpopular, makes us look the fool, makes us an object of scorn to the world. If we only follow Jesus when it makes us look good or feel good, then we can be sure we haven't even begun the life of discipleship. We're still back at square one with the rich young ruler counting the cost of following Jesus. But true spiritual worship refuses to conform God to the world's agenda. Instead, it transforms us into the image of Christ. Finally, spiritual worship clarifies God's will. When someone asks me, how can I know God's will? This is my favorite passage to point them to. And there's a certain logic from the beginning, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So we offer ourselves the first step in knowing God's will and discerning God's will is to offer ourselves fully, right? Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. I think oftentimes when we want to know God's will, we uh, already know that what we want to know about is contrary to scripture. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's not offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, is it? But then sometimes it's ambiguous, right? There's a relationship that we're in and we want to know, is this the person that God has for me to marry? There's a new job on offer and we want to know, should I accept this? And the way that we discern God's will, I've just learned, like this is the kind of first principle of discerning God's will is relinquishing our own. That's really the work of discerning God's will. I'm not saying that it's going to be crystal clear to you afterwards, but you got to start with relinquishing your own will. So, so let's pretend for example, that this phone is, is something it represents something that I want to know God's will about. Some of you guys have seen me do this, right? Uh, You know, it's, it's a relationship. It's a new job. It's, it's, it's should I move? It's something like that. Right. And, and, and what we do if we want to discern God's will is we, we set that on the altar. Now, the problem is that, a living sacrifice doesn't often stay on the altar, does it? It moves, right? So we say, I'm laying this relationship down, God. I want to know your will. I want to know where I'm supposed to move. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. And we say, so I'm going to give this to you. And the Lord's like, move your hand. <laughs> and you're like, I, I am. I'm just adjusting it a little bit, right? All right. So um, so I, I, you know, I, I'm just going to lay this before you. no. no. See, it takes trust, right? Because it's trust that God actually wants your good and knows what that means better than you know it. Right? So we can lay that down before the Lord, not because it's like excruciating, it, it kind of is, but but not, not because we're just sort of like, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna grin and bear it, you know, even though I know that it's terrible. No, we, we, we begin to learn to trust God and say, you're so good, God. You've been so good to me. You've given me all things. And so I give you this relationship. I give you this job opportunity, right? I give you this. And the Lord sometimes takes that thing and says, okay, thank you. I'll take that. (laughs) And sometimes he dusts it off and sanctifies our request and says, yeah, I want you to take that, that better job. I do want you to marry that person, right? And he gives it back to us. True worship clarifies God's will that by testing You may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So in Romans 12, one through two, we see these four principles of spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is a response to God's prior love. Spiritual worship is an offering of our whole selves. Spiritual worship resists conformity to the world and transforms us into the image of Christ. Spiritual worship clarifies God's will. Guys, what can we give To the one who has everything. What can we give to the creator of all? The only thing we have is to freely offer ourselves back to him. That's the only response. That's the appropriate response. Our bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. This is spiritual worship. Amen.